0: Chapter 55 Part 3 of The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire Volume 5 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire Volume 5 Chapter 55 Part 3 but the same communication which had been opened for the benefit, was soon abused for the injury of mankind. In a period of one hundred and ninety years, the Russians made four attempts to plunder the treasures of Constantinople. The event was various, but the motive, the means, and the object were the same in these naval expeditions. The Russian traders had seen the magnificence and tasted the luxury of the city of the Caesars. A marvelous tale and a scanty supply, excited the desires of their savage countrymen. They envied the gifts of nature which their climate denied. They coveted the works of art, which they were too lazy to imitate and too indigent to purchase. The Varangian princes unfurled the banners of piratical adventure, and their bravest soldiers were drawn from the nations that dwelt in the northern isles of the ocean. The image of their naval armaments was revived in the last century in the fleets of the Cossacks which issued from the boristhenes to navigate the same seas for a similar purpose. The Greek appellation of monoxyla, or single canoes, might justly be applied to the bottom of their vessels. It was scooped out of the long stem of a beech or willow, but the slight and narrow foundation was raised and continued on either side with planks, till it attained the length of sixty and the height of about twelve feet. These boats were built without a deck, But with two rudders and a mast, to move with sails and oars, and to contain from forty to seventy men with their arms and provisions of fresh water and salt fish. The first trial of the Russians was made with two hundred boats, but when the national force was exerted, they might arm against Constantinople a thousand or twelve hundred vessels. Their fleet was not much inferior to the royal navy of Agamemnon, but it was magnified in the eyes of fear, to ten or fifteen times the real proportion of its strength and numbers. Had the Greek emperors been endowed with foresight to discern, and vigour to prevent, perhaps they might have sealed with a maritime force the mouth of the Borysthenes. Their indolence abandoned the coast of Anatolia to the calamities of a piratical war, which, after an interval of six hundred years, again infested the Euxine. but as long as the capital was respected, the sufferings of a distant province escaped the notice both of the prince and the historian. The storm which had swept along from the Phasis and Trebizond at length burst on the Bosphorus of Trace, a strait of fifteen miles in which the rude vessels of the Russians might have been stopped and destroyed by a more skilful adversary in their first enterprise under the Princes of Kiev, and occupied the port of Constantinople in the absence of the Emperor Michael the son of Theophilus. Through a crowd of perils he landed at the palace stairs and immediately repaired to the church of the Virgin Mary. By the advice of the patriarch, her garment, a precious relic, was drawn from the sanctuary and dipped into the sea, and the seasonable tempest, which determined the retreat of the Russians, was devoutly ascribed to the Mother of God. The silence of the Greeks may inspire some doubt of the truth, or at least of the importance of the second attempt by Oleg, the guardian of the sons of Rurik. A strong barrier of arms and fortifications defended the Bosphorus. They were eluded by the usual expedient of drawing the boats over the Isthmus, and this simple operation is described in the National Chronicles as if the Russian fleet had sailed over dry land with a brisk and favorable gale. The leader of the Third Armament, Igor, the son of Rurik, had chosen a moment of weakness and decay, when the naval powers of the empire were employed against the Saracens. But if courage be not wanting, the instruments of defence are seldom deficient. Fifteen broken and decayed galleys were boldly launched against the enemy. But instead of the single tube of Greek fire, usually planted in the prow, the sides and stern of each vessel were abundantly supplied with that liquid combustible. The engineers were dexterous. The weather was propitious. Many thousand Russians, who chose rather to be drowned than burnt, leaped into the sea, and those who escaped to the Thracian shore were inhumanly slaughtered by the peasants and soldiers. Yet one-third of the canoes escaped into shallow water, and the next spring Igor was again prepared to retrieve his disgrace and claim his revenge. After a long peace, Yaroslaus, the great-grandson of Igor, resumed the same project of a naval invasion, fleet under the command of his son was repulsed at the entrance of the bosphorus by the same artificial flames but in the rashness of pursuit the vanguard of the greeks was encompassed by an irresistible multitude of boats and men their provision of fire was probably exhausted and twenty-four galleys were either taken sunk or destroyed yet the threats or calamities of russian war were more frequently diverted by treaty than by arms in these naval hostilities every disadvantage was on the side of the Greeks. Their savage enemy afforded no mercy, his poverty promised no spoil, his impenetrable retreat deprived the conqueror of the hopes of revenge, and the pride or weakness of empire indulged an opinion that no honor could be gained or lost in the intercourse with barbarians. At first their demands were high and inadmissible, three pounds of gold for each soldier or mariner of the fleet, The Russian youth adhered to the design of conquest and glory. But the counsels of moderation were recommended by the hoary sages. Be content, they said, with the liberal offers of Caesar. Is it not far better to obtain without a combat the possession of gold, silver, silks, and all the objects of our desires? Are we sure of victory? Can we conclude a treaty with the sea? We do not tread on the land. We float on the abyss of water and the common death hangs over our heads. The memory of these Arctic fleets that seemed to descend from the polar circle left a deep impression of terror on the imperial city. By the vulgar of every rank, it was asserted and believed that an equestrian statue in the square of Taurus was secretly inscribed with the prophecy how the Russians, in the last days, should become masters of Constantinople. In our own time, a Russian armament instead of sailing from the Boristanis, has circumnavigated the continent of Europe, and the Turkish capital has been threatened by a squadron of strong and lofty ships of war, each of which, with its naval science and thundering artillery, could have sunk or scattered a hundred canoes, such as those of their ancestors. Perhaps the present generation may yet behold the accomplishment of the prediction, of a rare prediction, of which the style is unambiguous and the date unquestionable. By land the Russians were less formidable than by sea, and as they fought for the most part on foot, their irregular legions must often have been broken and overthrown by the cavalry of the Scythian hordes. Yet their growing towns, however slight and imperfect, presented a shelter to the subject and a barrier to the enemy. The monarchy of Kiev, till a fatal partition, assumed the dominion of the north and the nations from the Volga to the Danube were subdued or repelled by the arms of Svatoslaus, the son of Igor, the son of Oleg, the son of Rurik. The vigour of his mind and body was fortified by the hardships of a military and savage life. Wrapped in a bear-skin, Svatoslaus usually slept on the ground, his head reclining on a saddle, his diet was coarse and frugal, and, like the heroes of Homer, his meat, it was often horse-flesh, was broiled or roasted on the coals, the exercise of war gave stability and discipline to his army, and it may be presumed that no soldier was permitted to transcend the luxury of his chief. By an embassy from Nikephorus, the Greek emperor, he was moved to undertake the conquest of Bulgaria, and a gift of 1,500 pounds of gold was laid at his feet to defray the expense or reward the toils of the expedition. An army of 60,000 men was assembled and embarked, they sailed from the Boristhenes to the Danube, the landing was effected on the Mesian shore, and, after a sharp encounter, the swords of the Russians prevailed against the arrows of the Bulgarian horse. The vanquished king sunk into his grave, his children were made captive, and his dominions, as far as Mount Hemus, were subdued or ravaged by the northern invaders. But instead of relinquishing his prey, and performing his engagements, the Varangian prince was more disposed to advance than to retire, and, had his ambition been crowned with success, the seat of empire in that early period might have been transferred to a more temperate and fruitful climate. Swatoslaus enjoyed and acknowledged the advantages of his new position, in which he could unite, by exchange or rapine, the various productions of the earth. By an easy navigation he might draw from Russia the native commodities of furs, wax, and hydromel, Hungary supplied him with a breed of horses and the spoils of the West, and Greece abounded with gold, silver, and foreign luxuries, which his poverty had affected to disdain. The bands of Patsnesites, Cossars, and Turks, repaired to the standard of victory, and the ambassador of Nicephorus, betrayed his trust, assumed the purple, and promised to share with his new allies the treasures of the Eastern world. From the banks of the Danube, the Russian prince pursued his march as far as Adrianople. A formal summons to evacuate the Roman province was dismissed with contempt, and Swatoslaus fiercely replied that Constantinople might soon expect the presence of an enemy and a master. Nicephorus could no longer expel the mischief which he had introduced, but his throne and wife were inherited by John Simiscus, who, in a diminutive body, possessed the spirit and abilities of a hero. The first victory of his lieutenants deprived the Russians of their foreign allies, twenty thousand of whom were either destroyed by the sword or provoked the revolt, or tempted to desert. Thrace was delivered, but seventy thousand barbarians were still in arms, and the legions that had been recalled from the new conquest of Syria prepared, with the return of spring, to march under the banners of a warlike prince, who declared himself a friend and avenger of the injured Bulgarian. The passes of Mount Hemus had been left unguarded. They were instantly occupied. The Roman vanguard was formed of the Immortals, a proud imitation of the Persian style. The emperor led the main body of 10,500 foot, and the rest of his forces followed in slow and cautious array with the baggage and military engines. The first exploit of Tsimiskes was the reduction of Marcianopolis or Perestlava in two days? The trumpets sounded, the walls were scaled, 8,500 Russians were put to the sword, and the sons of the Bulgarian king were rescued from an ignominious prison and invested with the nominal diadem. After these repeated losses, Svatoslavs retired to the strong post of Drista on the banks of the Danube and was pursued by an enemy who alternately employed the arms of celerity and delay. The Byzantine galleys ascended the river, the legions completed the line of circumvallation, and the Russian prince was encompassed, assaulted, and famished in the fortifications of the camp and city. Many deeds of valour were performed, several desperate sallies were attempted. Nor was it till after a siege of sixty-five days that Svatoslaus yielded to his adverse fortune. The liberal terms which he obtained announced the prudence of the victor, who respected the valour and apprehended the despair, of an unconquered mind. The great duke of Russia bound himself, by solemn imprecations, to relinquish all hostile designs. A safe passage was opened for his return, the liberty of trade and navigation was restored, a measure of corn was distributed to each of his soldiers, and the allowance of 22,000 measures attests the loss and the remnant of the barbarians. After a painful voyage, they again reached the mount of the Borysthenes but their provisions were exhausted. The season was unfavourable. They passed the winter on the ice, and, before they could prosecute their march, Swatoslaus was surprised and oppressed by the neighbouring tribes, with whom the Greeks entertained a perpetual and useful correspondence. Far different was the return of Cimiskes, who was received in his capital like Camillus or Marius, the saviors of ancient Rome. But the merit of the victory, was attributed by the pious emperor to the mother of God, and the image of the Virgin Mary, with the divine infant in her arms, was placed in a triumphal car, adorned with the spoils of war and the ensigns of Bulgarian royalty. Tsimiskes made his public entry on horseback, the diadem in his head, a crown of laurel in his hand, and Constantinople was astonished to applaud the martial virtues of her sovereign. Fortius of Constantinople, a patriarch, whose ambition was equal to his curiosity, congratulates himself and the Greek church on the conversion of the Russians, those fierce and bloody barbarians had been persuaded, by the voice of reason and religion, to acknowledge Jesus for their God, the Christian missionaries for their teachers, and the Romans for their friends and brethren. His triumph was transient and premature, in the various fortune of the piratical adventures, Some Russian chiefs might allow themselves to be sprinkled with the waters of baptism, and a Greek bishop with the name of Metropolitan might administer the sacraments in the church of Kiev to a congregation of slaves and natives. But the seed of the gospel was sown on a barren soil. Many were the apostates, the converts were few, and the baptism of Olga may be fixed as the era of Russian Christianity. A female perhaps of the basest origin, who could avenge the death and assume the sceptre of her husband Igor, must have been endowed with those active virtues which command the fear and obedience of barbarians. In a moment of foreign and domestic peace, she sailed from Kiev to Constantinople, and the emperor Constantine Porphyrogenitus has described with minute diligence the ceremonial of her reception in his capital and palace." the steps, the titles, the salutations, the banquet, the presents, were exquisitely adjusted to gratify the vanity of the stranger, with due reverence to the superior majesty of the purple. In the sacrament of baptism, she received the venerable name of the Empress Helena, and her conversion might be preceded or followed by her uncle, two interpreters, sixteen damsels of a higher and eighteen of a lower rank, 22 domestic ministers, and 44 Russian merchants, who composed the retinue of the great princess Olga. After her return to Kiev and Novgorod, she firmly persisted in her new religion, but her labors in the propagation of the gospel were not crowned with success, and both her family and nation adhered with obstinacy or indifference to the gods of their fathers. Her son Svatuslaus was apprehensive of the scorn and ridicule of his companions, and her grandson, Volodymyr, devoted his youthful zeal to multiply and decorate the monuments of ancient worship. The savage deities of the north were still propitiated with human sacrifices. In the choice of the victim, a citizen was preferred to a stranger, a Christian to an idolater, and the father, who defended his son from the sacerdotal knife, was involved in the same doom by the rage of a fanatic tumult. Yet the lessons and example Of the pious Olga had made a deep, though secret, impression in the minds of the prince and people. The Greek missionaries continued to preach, to dispute, and to baptize. And the ambassadors or merchants of Russia compared the idolatry of the woods with the elegant superstition of Constantinople. They had gazed with admiration on the dome of St. Sophia, the lively pictures of saints and martyrs, the riches of the altar, the number and vestments of the priests, the pomp and order of the ceremonies. They were edified by the alternate succession of devout silence and harmonious song. Nor was it difficult to persuade them that a choir of angels descended each day from heaven to join in the devotion of the Christians. But the conversion of Volodymyr was determined, or hastened, by his desire of a Roman bride. At the same time, and in the city of The rites of baptism and marriage were celebrated by the christian pontiff the city he restored to the emperor basil the brother of his spouse but the brazen gates were transported as it is said to novgorod and erected before the first church as a trophy of his victory and faith this despotic command Peron, the god of thunder whom he had so long adored was dragged through the streets of Kiev, and twelve sturdy barbarians battered with clubs the mishapen image which was indignantly cast into the waters of the Boristanis. The edict of Volodymyr had proclaimed that all who should refuse the rites of baptism would be treated as the enemies of God and their prince, and the rivers were instantly filled with many thousands of obedient Russians, who acquiesced in the truth and excellence of a doctrine which had been embraced by the great duke and his warriors. In the next generation, the relics of paganism were finally extirpated, But as the two brothers of Volodymyr had died without baptism, their bones were taken from the grave and sanctified by an irregular and posthumous sacrament. In the 9th, 10th, and 11th centuries of the Christian era, the reign of the Gospel and of the Church was extended over Bulgaria, Hungary, Bohemia, Saxony, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Poland, and Russia. The triumphs of apostolic zeal were repeated in the Iron Age of Christianity, and the northern and eastern regions of Europe submitted to a religion, more different in theory than in practice, from the worship of their native idols. A laudable ambition excited the monks both of Germany and Greece, to visit the tents and huts of the barbarians. Poverty, hardships, and dangers were the lot of the first missionaries. Their courage was active and patient, their motive pure and meritorious. Their present reward consisted in the testimony of their conscience and the respect of a grateful people, but the fruitful harvest of their toils was inherited and enjoyed by the proud and wealthy prelates of the succeeding times. The first conversions were free and spontaneous; a holy life and an elegant tongue were the only arms of the missionaries. but the domestic fables of the pagans were silenced by the miracles and visions of the strangers and the favorable temper of the chiefs was accelerated by the dictates of vanity and interest. The leaders of the nations, who were saluted with the titles of kings and saints, held it lawful and pious to impose the Catholic faith on their subjects and neighbors. The coast of the Baltic, from Holstein to the Gulf of Finland, was invaded under the standard of the cross, and the reign of idolatry was closed by the conversion of Lithuania in the 14th century yet truth and candor master knowledge that the conversion of the north imparted many temporal benefits, both to the old and the new Christians. The rage of war, inherent to the human species, could not be healed by the evangelic precepts of charity and peace, and the ambition of Catholic princes has renewed in every age the calamities of hostile contention. But the admission of the barbarians into the pale of civil and ecclesiastical society delivered Europe from the depredations, by sea and land, of the Normans, the Hungarians, and the Russians, who learned to spare their brethren and cultivate their positions. The establishment of law and order was promoted by the influence of the clergy, and the rudiments of art and science were introduced into the savage countries of the globe. The liberal piety of the Russian princes engaged in their service the most skillful of the Greeks, to decorate the cities and destruct the inhabitants. The dome and the paintings of St. Sophia were rudely copied in the churches of Kiev and Novgorod. The writings of the fathers were translated into the Slavonic idiom, and three hundred noble youths were invited or compelled to attend the lessons of the College of Jaroslavs. It should appear that Russia might have derived an easy and rapid improvement from her peculiar connection with the church and state of Constantinople which at that age so justly despised the ignorance of the Latins. But the Byzantine nation was servile, solitary, and verging to a hasty decline. After the fall of Kiev, the navigation of the Boristenes was forgotten, the great princes of Volodymyr and Moscow were separated from the sea and Christendom, and the divided monarchy was oppressed by the ignominy and blindness of Tartar servitude. The Sclavonic and Scandinavian kingdoms which had been converted by the Latin missionaries were exposed, it is true, to the spiritual jurisdiction and temporal claims of the popes, but they were united in language and religious worship with each other and with Rome. They imbibed the free and generous spirit of the European Republic, and gradually shared the light of knowledge which arose on the Western world. End of chapter fifty five, part three. Recording by Mons-Bruh. Helsingfors, Finland